all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake up in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. T.E. Lawrence, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, A Triumph. William Walker was a dreamer of the day, and a very dangerous man indeed. He dreamed imperial dreams, and thousands would die amid the destruction his visions wrought, including him. Ultimately, his dream would end at the rifle muzzles of a Honduran firing squad. There was nothing in Walker's appearance that looked dangerous. He was only about five feet two inches tall and weighed maybe 120 pounds. Not the physique of a swaggering freebooter and conqueror of nations. His eyes, though. They were cold and hard and his gaze was fixed upon a dream of the day. And they gave him the title that did for a time inspire men to follow, often enough to their doom. William Walker was the gray-eyed man of destiny. Walker was born in 1824 in Tennessee into a prosperous upper-middle-class family which inherited a legacy of military service in the American Revolution and the War of 1812. And that heritage seems to have inculcated in Walker a desire for military glory. He was a precociously intelligent young man, graduating from college at the age of 13. He went on to medical school, including a stint studying in France, where he found French sexual mores alarming and disgusting. He returned to the U.S., abandoned medicine as a career, and decided to take up law and moved to New Orleans to practice. But he found the law boring and became a newspaper publisher and editor of the New Orleans Crescent instead. It's not unusual for a young man, and Walker was very young still, to change his mind about his path in life, try different things, plunging in with passion, only to abandon this new course in months. But Walker seemed to feel more than the average restlessness of youth. It wasn't long before he sold his newspaper interest in New Orleans and joined the flood of young men headed to California where the gold rush promised opportunity and adventure. Walker became editor of the San Francisco Herald and he was one of those argumentative editors in an era when newspapers were notable for being very combative, and he became embroiled in quarrels serious enough to end in duels. He was not a very good duelist. In the three duels he fought, he drew no blood and was wounded twice, once in the leg and once in the foot. While convalescing from his wounds of honor, Walker's restless spirit began to wander from his journalistic endeavors, and he conceived a, a plan. He decided that the thing to do was to establish an American colony in the Mexican state of Sonora. He actually traveled to Mexico to try to sell the Mexican government on the notion of allowing Americans to establish a colony, a kind of a buffer state that would protect Sonorans from the rampages 
of the Apache Indians who were tearing up the state with constant raiding. The Mexicans had seen this movie before in a place called Texas, and so they took a hard pass on Walker's proposal. Walker decided to go ahead with his plan, regardless of how Mexico, or the United States government for that matter, felt about it. He set out in October 1853 to conquer Sonora. This expedition was entirely harebrained. I cannot possibly describe it any more colorfully than the wonderfully sardonic account offered by Horace Bell in Reminiscences of a Ranger, Early Times in Southern California, which is, incidentally, one of the great frontier partisan memoirs of all time and an absolute delight to read. Bell cast a humorously jaundiced eye on the self-serving rhetoric of filibustering. The theory of filibustering, or manifest destiny, was, first, that the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and we are the Lord's people. Second, that all Spanish-American governments are worthless and should be reconstructed, and that such is our mission, that the people of Lower California and Sonora are, or should be, dissatisfied with Mexican rule, and are, or should be, ripe for rebellion, and, if not in terror of the Mexican central despotism, would cry out for American aid to shake off their galling chains. The Sonoreños ought to rise, proclaim their independence, and cry for help from the generous filibuster, who stood ready to help the downtrodden Mexican and to feather his own nest in particular. We were therefore determined to succor the oppressed people of Lower California and Sonora, who were silently praying that we might come and relieve them from their cruel yoke and their surplus supply of horses and such like, and possess the lands of the country and receive the thanks of a grateful people after we had won their liberties and relieved them of their property. Such were the noble sentiments that inspired the champions of Manifest Destiny, or the spirit of conquest run riot, and culminating in those piratical expeditions of 1851 to Cuba and 1853 to Lower California. Horace Bell was a gold seeker, a lawman, a soldier, a lawyer, and a journalist. And as John Bossenecker, the eminent California historian, notes, he was a masterful storyteller. And uh, his book is probably the best memoir of early California, which is where a lot of filibustering expeditions got their start. So given Bell's credentials and uh, his pen warmed up in hell um, with the obvious influence of, of Mark Twain showing through, I think I'll just allow him to recount the wild and violent and uh, short-lived story of the Republic of Lower California and the Republic of Sonora. In October 1853, the bark Caroline sailed from San Francisco with the Republic of Lower California and Sonora on board. William Walker as president and Watkins as vice president, with a full complement of ministers of war, of marine, of finance, of foreign relations, and of state, with all the respective secretaries and other grave functionaries, judicial officers, and so forth, and too tedious to mention, and in fixing up the departments of government 
with a military establishment, generals, colonels, and all such like, all of whom had to have been selected from less than 50 men, it is doubtful whether there was the traditional private to stand guard. In November, the government of the two republics reached La Paz, landed, scattered the inhabitants, captured the governor, proclaimed the independence of Lower California, hauled down the Mexican flag, declared the civil code of Louisiana to be the law of the land, and ran up the flag of manifest destiny, a blue field and a lone red star. All of this was done within half an hour. A few days thereafter, a great battle was fought. The ungrateful Mexicans rebelled against their liberators. Two or three were killed on either side, the rebels were whipped, and the government triumphed. This was called the Battle of La Paz. The news of this battle caused more enthusiasm in California than did the battles fought by Taylor on the Rio Grande among the war champions in the United States. In San Francisco, the national flag of the New Republic was flung to the breeze on the corner of Kearney and California streets, where a recruiting office was opened and the cut-and-dried bonds of the government were put upon the market and sold. The war spirit ran riot. Freedom to the Mexicans and spoils to the Americans was the battle cry. Lower California must be free, and then ho for Sonora, a league of land with cattle to stock it, and all for the trouble of going there. Next came the news of the Battle of La Grulla, where the liberators were handled without gloves by a young Mexican Hercules named Melendez, who objected to being liberated. Young America to the rescue was the cry. Men of means advanced money. Recruits flocked to the standards of the government. Headquarters in San Francisco were crowded. The drums clattered, the trumpets brayed, and the fifes screamed. La Grulla must be avenged. Melendez the rebel must be hung. The Mexican tyrants must be put down. Accordingly, in December, the bark Anita, flying the Lone Star flag, sailed from San Francisco, carrying 240 ardent liberators. In the meantime, the government, carrying the archives with it, abandoned La Paz, which is around on the Gulf side of the peninsula, and came around and established the national capital at Ensenada, where it was joined by the Anita contingent. Encouraged by this formidable reinforcement, the government, by a graceful flourish of Walker's pen, abolished the old flag and ran up in its stead the triple-barred and twin-starred flag and annexed Sonora, all in a few minutes, followed by a grandiloquent proclamation which dwelt on the holiness of the cause. The government was backed by the people of California, who believed in the good old rule, the simple plan, that they should take who have the power and they should keep who can. All in all, about 500 men rallied to the support of the twin republics. But somehow or other, young Hercules still refused to be liberated and kept harassing the government to such an extent that they found it difficult to forage for beef and beans. The rank and file became hungry and dissatisfied, and some attempted to desert, for which the government had them shot. Melendez, the mendacious rebel, kept pegging away at the government until it was driven from its capital without a place whereupon to rest its weary head, and so it set out on foot for Sonora. Melendez resolved to go to Sonora also, and followed close on the rear of the emigrating government. Harassed it day and night, and followed it across the United States line, the government having deflected toward San Diego with Melendez barking at its heels. Major McKinstry, commanding the United States Post at San Diego, charitably marched to the rescue and kindly took the government of the Twin Republics in out of the cold and bade Hercules Melendez to go home and be a good boy, cultivate sandias, and 
have ever open eye for jerked beef. The ragtag and bobtail of the army came to Los Angeles. The government was sent to San Francisco, where it was tried and acquitted, and a year or two later went on a pilgrimage of liberation to Nicaragua with about the same success that attended its unappreciated efforts in Lower California and Sonora. So, as Bell indicates, Walker surrendered himself and what was left of the ragtag and bobtail of his four-month-old expedition to American military authorities. He was transported to San Francisco to be tried for violation of the 1818 Neutrality Act, but as Bell will tell you, it was almost impossible to convict a filibuster of filibustering in the climate that prevailed in California in the early 1850s. At that time in California, it was as unpopular to be opposed to filibustering as it was to be opposed to African slavery, then our most cherished institution, and few had the courage to say aught against it. Then, who should blame the man who shouldered a rifle and went to the field to maintain and vindicate the spirit of the times? So, as Bell says, Walker walked, which left him free to get himself involved with further trouble on a much grander scale in the Nicaraguan Civil War. A faction known as Liberals from Nicaragua offered Walker a contract to lead American colonists to that Central American nation to help the Liberals fight the Conservatives, who were also known as Legitimists. Now, Walker insisted on this contract because uh, he didn't want to violate the Neutrality Act, so he didn't want to be caught plotting a military expedition to a foreign country with which the United States was at peace, but the law did not prevent um, miners and, and settlers from heading to Nicaragua. But uh, despite that legal fig leaf, it was a military expedition. Why Nicaragua, besides that it was there and offered a, a field of opportunity for, for Walker's visions? In the 1850s, Nicaragua had taken on very considerable geopolitical importance because it had become the favored transit route for gold seekers heading from the eastern United States and Europe to the California gold fields. It was a much better and faster route than crossing the prairies of the United States or sailing around the Horn of South America. And it was since this was the days before there was a Panama Canal, um, it was an even better route than uh, traversing Panama, even though Panama was narrower. Transit went up the San Juan River to Lake Nicaragua, across the lake, um, and this is all in, in, in steamboats, and then there was a short overland jaunt to the Pacific where travelers could pick up a ship to San Francisco or to Bell's Los Angeles. Um, Walker sailed again from San Francisco on May 3rd, 1855, with about 60 men, which would be known as, uh, kind of grandly, as the American Phalange, or the American Phalanx. When he landed on the coast of Nicaragua, a force of about 110 liberals joined him, and they set off to attack the legitimate stronghold of Rivas. 
an American mercenary named Charles Doubleday, who had been in country for some time, warned Walker that the commander of the local force, their liberal allies, were was not reliable. But Walker just shrugged him off. And that moment is recounted in Scott Martell's book, William Walker's Wars. The reason for his indifference, Doubleday later recalled, was his inordinate confidence in the ability of his handful of Americans to conquer, unassisted, any number of the enemy. That hubris worried Doubleday, who had fought against the conservative forces for several years, while Walker's sole military experience, quote, had been confined to the sagebrush-nurtured inhabitants of Sonora, who were ready to fly at the sound of their own guns. He was evidently committing the grave error in a commanding officer of undervaluing his enemy. End quote. And those factors led to a disaster. Walker didn't conduct any kind of, of reconnaissance and uh, didn't actually even come up with a, a plan of battle. And as the American phalanx entered the town, Walker's local Nicaraguan contingent, just as Doubleday predicted, faded back, leaving the Americans isolated and, and vulnerable on the streets of a barricaded town. And if the legitimists had been able to bring accurate fire to bear, they would have just annihilated Walker and his whole command. As it was, they were badly chewed up. Um, they took refuge in an, an adobe house for a time before Doubleday led them out in a revolver charge, um, and they, they broke out and through the conservative lines, leaving their wounded behind to be executed, and their corpses burned in Rivas's plaza. That really could have and should have been the end of Walker's filibuster. But whatever his faults as a commander, Walker was not a quitter. He got his muddy, bloody remnants of, of the American phalanx back down the shores of Lake Nicaragua, and they rested up and refitted and received some reinforcement from other adventurous Americans who were transiting Nicaragua and from more of the Nicaraguan liberals. And then Walker got kind of lucky. The legitimists attacked Walker's force at Virgin Bay, which was the western terminus of the transit across Lake Nicaragua. And this time, Walker's men prevailed. Um, it wasn't so much uh, tactical brilliance, but uh, they had good rifles and uh, knew how to use them, while the legitimist forces were armed mostly with smoothbore muskets and, and were not effective shots. Walker's phalanx took very few casualties, and none were killed, while the Americans killed some 60 to 80 of the enemy, depending on what account you read. On the scale of Central American warfare in the mid-19th century, this was a crushing victory. And Walker was able to follow up this triumph by taking the old Spanish colonial city of Granada and effectively winning the country for the liberals. 
the official president of liberal Nicaragua was Patricio Rivas, and uh, he won official recognition from the American administration of President Franklin Pierce. But everybody knew that as general of the army, William Walker, who by this time his propagandists had started calling him the gray-eyed man of destiny, was the real power behind the throne. And in July 1856, he would take that throne himself in an election that made him president of Nicaragua. Walker had very big ambitions, imperial ambitions. He basically wanted to take all of Central America and uh, create an American-led, well, not colony there, but an American-led empire there that would align with the United States but not be part of the United States. Walker, after all, wanted to be the president. He made English the official language of Nicaragua, and one of the first things he did as president was rescind the 1838 law that had banned slavery in Nicaragua. And this move has been the subject of historical debate for a century. Was Walker a pro-slavery imperialist from the outset of his Nicaraguan adventure, bent on making real the visions of outfits like the Knights of the Golden Circle? who envisioned an empire of slavery centered in the Caribbean and covering Central America? Or was he an opportunist who thought that opening Nicaragua to slavery would encourage investment from the plantation-owning pro-slavery elite of the American South? I tend to lean toward the latter explanation. I don't think that, that the expansion of slavery was absolutely central to Walker's project. Walker is hard to understand, but it seems to me that he was a narcissist of pretty high degree whose desire to become a little emperor in Central America had more to do with his personal grandiosity and drive for glory than anything else. He wasn't really working on an ideological agenda other than believing himself to be an agent of manifest destiny. If anti-slavery forces could have helped him, he would have probably have pandered to them. As it was, many of the recruits to the American Falange happened to be Southerners, and the prospects for investment and development seemed best geared toward Southerners. So he pandered to them. Now, I'm not saying that doing that posed any kind of moral quandary for Walker, he was imbued with the standard-issue white supremacist outlook of his day. And he justified reintroducing slavery this way. The white man took the Negro from his native wastes, and teaching him the arts of life, bestowed on him the ineffable blessings of a true religion. Africa is permitted to lie idle until America is discovered, in order that she may conduce to the formation of a new society in the new world. The introduction of Negro slavery into Nicaragua would furnish a supply of constant and reliable labor requisite for the cultivation of tropical products. With the Negro slave as his companion, the white man would become fixed to the soil, and they together would destroy the power of the mixed race, 
which is the bane of the country. Again, it's not clear whether Walker was determined to reintroduce slavery from the very beginning or not, but it seems to me almost an academic point because by the time that he took power and had the ability to do it, he did um, almost immediately. So the reintroduction of slavery in Nicaragua was a, a key part of his mission, whether it was intended from the beginning or not. The mercenary Doubleday, who was anti-slavery in his beliefs and believed that its reintroduction would actually alienate the Nicaraguan population, resigned his command in the phalanx and left Nicaragua. And he was right. Nicaraguans were alienated. In fact, Walker alienated everybody. Before Walker even took the presidency, when, when uh, it was the, the Rivas-Walker government, liberals and legitimists decided that Walker was a bigger threat to their country than either of them were, and put aside their decades-long enmity to join forces against him. Neighboring countries like Costa Rica, Honduras, and El Salvador all feared, quite rightly, that Walker had imperial designs on their territory. And Walker had pissed off Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest men in the world. Vanderbilt's fortune was built on shipping, and he had established the Axis Transit Company to transport 49ers across Nicaragua to California. Walker confiscated his steamboats. Now, this had a, a military rationale. This was the, the way that, uh, that Walker could ferry reinforcements into his country. But Vanderbilt was a very tough hombre who came up hard on the docks in New York, and he was not a man to be crossed. He was absolutely enraged and began pouring money into Costa Rica to arm its military to throw Walker out of Nicaragua. The upside for Walker was he was now famous, and a good number of recruits were flooding into the country to join the adventure, which seemed very romantic from a distance until you got into the rains and and the jungle conditions and and the reality that everybody in Central America was against it. But at this time, a lot of Americans and uh, idealistic or desperate young men from Europe also were joining Walker. The downside, obviously, was that everybody in the region was determined to overthrow this upstart government. Martel offers an interesting portrait of the American phalange or phalanx as it went to war with the world. The phalanx was a motley and ever-shifting crew with an average age of 26 years, an average height of just under 5 feet 8 inches, according to Walker's January to April 1857 muster rolls of 1,072 soldiers, not including about 250 officers. More than half were of light complexion and hair. Of the 674 men whose birth states were recorded, 174 had been born in New York and 77 in Louisiana, but they were drawn from across the country and many from Europe as well. 
New Orleans, the closest U.S. port, recorded 473 recruits, and 189 signed up in California, most likely in San Francisco, and 172 in New York. About a tenth of the muster roll had enlisted in Nicaragua, men in transit who decided to stay, or those who came to Nicaragua on their own and enlisted upon arrival. Despite Walker's pretensions of running a highly organized army, there were eight companies under the 1st Infantry, three companies of rangers, the 1st Rifles and 2nd Rifles, two artillery units and an ordnance corps, it was a gaggle of adventurers with no set uniform for the rank of file and inconsistent dress for the officers. Only 31 men listed soldier as their occupation before joining Walker, while 124 had been clerks, 106 laborers, and 89 farmers. Discipline was imaginary, with men spending idle hours getting drunk. Many went into battle that way. A full 195 men on the muster roll were described as having deserted, and at least 137 had been killed, a count that does not include officers and only covers the first four months of 1857. It was, by and large, a force constantly in flux as scores of usually green recruits arrived on a sporadic basis, while existing fighters were siphoned off through fatal illness, battle deaths, incapacitating wounds, and desertion. Those with fighting experience in the Mexican-American War or other filibuster movements tended to serve well. Those who signed on for adventure, or who were coerced into service after arriving in search of land, made for unreliable fighters. The Falange had already got its ass handed to it by Costa Ricans at Santa Rosa when Walker made a preemptive strike at his neighbor's gathering forces, and in a second battle at Rivas in in April 1856, before Walker became president. The Walker-Rivas regime only got a respite because cholera gutted the Costa Rican army, which took home the devastating epidemic and killed 10,000 of their countrymen. From Walker's ascendancy to the presidential chair in July of 1856 on, there would be no military successes. By this time, Walker didn't really have any Nicaraguans on his side, so it was the American phalange, the phalanx, now about 1,500 men of varying quality, versus 6,000 troops of various nations, well-armed thanks to Vanderbilt funding. It would have taken a military genius to overcome the odds against Walker, and our gray-eyed man of destiny was not that. Vanderbilt sent in an agent named Sylvanus Spencer who was also a tough hombre who had probably murdered his ship's captain on the high seas in his rough-and-tumble youth. Spencer worked with Costa Rican troops supervised by Colonel Salvador Mora and ably led by a Colonel Blanco and a Colonel Salazar to pick off Vanderbilt's steamboats and Walker's fortifications one by one along the San Juan River, which wrested control of the transit route from Walker's government and also restored the ships to their rightful owner. So, at the conclusion of this campaign in 1857, Walker was cut off from reinforcement from the Caribbean. Eventually, Walker's capital at Granada was threatened, and he knew he couldn't hold it. So, he ordered one of his generals, who was a Belgian mercenary named Charles Frederick Henningsen, to destroy the city. It was done with utter ruthlessness. They flattened it. 
and, uh, and burned it. And Henningsen left an inscription on the ruins that said, Here was Granada. Walker, as always, justified his action. As to the justice of the act, few can question it, for its inhabitants owed life and property to the Americans in service of Nicaragua, and yet they joined the enemies who strove to drive their protectors from Central America. They served the enemies of Nicaragua in the most criminal manner, for they acted as spies on the Americans who had defended their interests and sent notice of all their movements to the Allies. By the laws of war, the town had forfeited its existence, and the policy of destroying it was as manifest as the justice of the measure. Destroying Granada was certainly morally questionable, and it was strategically and tactically disastrous. Um, as Martel notes, of the 419 men under Henningsen's command when Walker ordered him to destroy Granada, 120 died of cholera or other diseases. 40 deserted, 110 were killed or wounded so badly they could no longer fight, and two were missing and presumed to have been captured by the Allies. The force that came to rescue them suffered 14 killed and 30 wounded, all for the sake of burning down a city. Walker's position in Nicaragua was untenable. His enemies were gathering strength, while, well, as we've just seen, his American phalanx continued to crumble through disease, combat deaths, and desertion. On May 1, 1857, Walker surrendered himself to Commander Charles Henry Davis of the U.S. Navy. Just as he had in Sonora, he put himself under U.S. military protection to save himself. The Navy took him to New York City, where he was generally received with a hero's welcome. He would write a book about his adventures in Nicaragua and would try several more times to get back to Nicaragua, insisting that he was still its legitimate president. On the fourth try, he was arrested by an officer of the British Navy. The British had interest in British Honduras and the Nicaraguan Mosquito Coast, and they considered Walker a dangerous loose cannon and a problem. So this Navy officer rather cynically handed Walker over to the Hondurans. They had to know what would happen, and it did. On September 12, 1860, the Hondurans sat Walker on a chair in front of a firing squad and shot him. Then they shot him again as he lay on the ground twitching, and then an officer emptied a revolver into his face. And the gray-eyed man of destiny was no more. William Walker was one of the most famous men in America in his day. But this wild ride was overtaken, overshadowed, and ultimately forgotten in the maelstrom of the American Civil War. Today, it's doubtful that most Americans would recognize the name or ever have heard of the great filibuster in Nicaragua. Central America remembers, though. He's seen as a symbol of Yankee imperialism, 
and those who fought against him are national heroes in each of the small countries that allied to drive him out. I have to admit that over the past few weeks of of reading, I found Walker to be pretty unpleasant company. He was priggish and cold and narcissistic and, and prone to despotic tendencies. Uh, he was very prone to shoot men under his own command uh, and seemed to be completely uncaring about the impact of his actions on the people that he was supposed to be liberating. I am happy enough to leave him in his Honduran grave. Acknowledging, however, that his bizarre rise and fall is one hell of a tale of the frontier partisans. I want to thank our patrons who make the Frontier Partisans podcast possible. That's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, Dave Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. If you're interested in becoming a patron and helping to support the Frontier Partisans podcast and blog, the link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. So, uh, the next episode will be moving across several decades and halfway around the world to an episode that is not usually considered a filibustering episode, but I think really makes all of the criteria. Uh, an event uh, known as the Jameson Raid, in which a private police force, paramilitary force, uh, under the auspices of Cecil Rhodes and led by Leander Starr Jameson, attempted to ignite a rebellion of the Utlanders in Johannesburg in the Transvaal just as the new year rolled around in 1896. And uh, as with most of these filibustering episodes, it ended in a terrible disaster and in this case uh, precipitated a very significant international incident and in the estimation of many people led to the second Anglo-Boer War just three years later. So, fascinating story, more hijinks on the high veld, and uh, I look forward to sharing that story with you, and we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>